Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. Today, I'm talking to Emma Johnson, mother to three young kids, including a set of twins, about the few years leading up to her 40th birthday and her perspective on aging. Emma says, we all have coping mechanisms. Some may be positive, some are negative, but when you have children, you lose access to many of those coping mechanisms. It's not as easy to get out of the house, to get to a yoga class, to go see your friends, to get a, go out, get a glass of wine or go for a walk. For much of the last eight years, a little part of Emma's mind has wondered when she'll get her life back. And she says things got a whole lot easier when she acknowledged that her life wasn't ever going to come back, but that she had the opportunity to build a new one. Understanding some pieces of that old life won't get incorporated into the new one, and maybe she'll find other pieces that she had forgotten about that she wants to build on or grow. You know, I don't have kids, so I don't have that same experience, but I did relate really strongly to one thing she said. After feeling like, after a couple of years, she had just gotten her life back on track, something else happened and she thought, when does my world stop exploding? And who boy, have I felt that one. Mm, like a whole bunch of my 20s and probably a good part of my 30s too. I can vividly remember a time in my late 20s uh, where I had such an attitude. I had been dumped by someone I thought I would marry, the first man I ever lived with. It was July and somehow I had pneumonia and bronchitis. My parents had put down the beloved family dog. And I was in the pool at my grandmother's house one afternoon and off in the distance there was thunder. Now, both my brothers were lifeguards and one of them might have even been there that day. So I knew what I was supposed to do. Everyone else got out of the pool, but I stayed in the pool, threw both my arms in the air and raged at the sky and said, you know, what are you gonna do? Bring it! You know, when things are going sideways for someone, a lot of times you hear, at least you've got your health. Well, I didn't even have that, and I was pretty tired of my life blowing up. It would still be several years of wandering in the wilderness before I had built a life that I love, but that memory is still very vivid. All right, are you ready to go to the Cotswolds and Bonnie Old England to meet Emma? Hi, Emma. It's nice to meet you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Stephanie. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I am really interested to dig into your story. As I do with several to many of my guests, I found you as I was wandering through Instagram, searching hashtags around turning 40. And I find that some people share some really amazing stories about turning 40. And you had some beautiful thoughts about 40 that I'm really interested to get into. But let's not jump there just yet. Let's start with a little background. Will you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm 41 now and I'm British and I'm in the UK with my three children, an eight-year-old girl and two twin boys, which is nothing short of a baptism by fire. I kid you not. <laughs> and my husband. In terms of a career background, writing is my main sort of the thing that it's not my bread and butter, but it's the one thing that really inspires me. Words and books and reading and writing has always kind of been my my passion. And that's taken me into lots of different places, including master's degrees, journalism, social media and content and producing podcasts as well. Then now a bit more the sort of work that I'm doing now with Women's Circles as well. 
yeah, that's probably me. <laughs> Great. You told me you're in the Cotswolds. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I don't know about anybody else, but I always feel like that's such a romantic part of England. Am I right? It is. I feel very blessed to live here. I grew up here and then moved to London, which is where I met my husband. And I was there for about 15 years. But when I was pregnant with my daughter, I thought, I don't want to do this without family around. <laughs> so it's about the only wise thing I've ever had about parenting. So we moved back down to kind of where I was from, which was quite a big shift because it meant for two years, my husband still had to commute to London, which from where we are is about a two and a half hour journey there and a two and a half hour journey back. Oh my God. How does that even happen? Are there even enough hours in the day? No, not really. I mean, and it was hard, you know, effectively for sort of the first two years of my daughter's life, he said goodnight to her on Sunday night when she went to bed and he saw her again on Saturday morning. And that was it. And I think when we actually had the twins, he did say, because he was working from home by that point, he said, it's just hit me how much I missed. But we moved back down here to be near family. And I have to say that we've been here eight years now. And obviously I'd lived here for about 20 years before. And every day I feel so grateful to live here. It is really chocolate boxy. Even when you live here, you drive around and think, oh, this is so beautiful. And we're in a little village in the middle of nowhere, really rural. We just walk up into the fields and you know, go romping in the woods and stuff. So no, it's, oh it's really fantastic. I'm very British. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> which is actually saying a lot because when you were 18, you did a full world tour. Tell me just a little bit about That was another of those things in hindsight that was mad. But my mum had done it when she was that age. My mum's family were one of, I don't know if you'll know about this, but um, what were known as the one pound poms who took a one pound. So the Australians called the Brits Poms and there was a point where they were trying to get lots of the British to go over to Australia and, and you could get a ticket on the boat for a pound and land was cheap and whatever. So my mum's family, when she was maybe 16, moved out to Australia from here. She was in Australia for about a couple of years, but then she kind of wanted to come home or back to the UK, but she didn't have enough money. So she effectively did the reverse trip, but she worked her way home. So she went to New Zealand and worked and kind of went all the way around. So because my mum had sort of, at the age of 17, 18, just travelled around the world by herself, it seemed a terribly normal thing. I was sort of 17, 18 to do it. I think when I look back at it now, it was mad. This was 21 years ago, so this was pre-mobile phones. The only internet was dial-up. I've got family in the Philippines, so I ended up spending about a month on an island in the Philippines. And to send one email took over an hour because you had to wait, you know. So, I mean, I think in hindsight, my mum said it was much better because she didn't have that mobile phone thing where she could check on me all the time. Right. She just knew she might not hear from me for five days. But yeah, so that's what I did. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I had friends and I, you know, had certain things I did, but mostly I was by myself and I went from here to Uganda, South Africa, quite a lot of Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and home. And it, it was completely amazing, actually. And for a long time, if I was ever scared of doing anything. I would always be able to sort of say to myself, you've been around the world by yourself, you can do this. Yeah. Um, and there were points where I was really aware how deep I was having to dig. Um, so yeah, it's, it was, it was nuts, <laughs> but it was extraordinary. <laughs> I wasn't quite that adventurous, but when I was in college, I did spend about nine months living in Ireland, schooling oh, and doing some other things like that. So I know what you mean. It was not only pre-internet. I think the school give us email addresses the second half of the time we were there. 
but nobody knew how to use them. And, yep. you know, this was in 92, 93, 94. I don't remember what, mm. right around there. I remember trying to send an email home and nobody knew how to get it. So yeah, in order to talk to my parents, I knew it was Sunday nights at a certain time. Either I was going to call them or they were going to call me. And that's when we connected on Sunday nights. And the rest of it was, there was no mobile phones. There was, you know, there was no Google maps. There was no. none of that. I don't know if you were the same, but like the letters, my mom's brilliant and she keeps all that sort of stuff. So I'm looking back at the letters that I sent and the kind of things that I was saying and I was still just quite naive 17 year old girl so some of my letters were full of that stuff but then some of the other stuff was just really extraordinary stuff about what I'd seen and where I'd gone and but yeah that and faxes I do remember sending quite a lot of faxes yes but also you communicate so differently you kind of save up stuff to tell people right and then the phone calls we had were always really good yeah yeah. I wonder if my parents have any, if my mom saved any of the letters I wrote, that would be an interesting exercise to go yeah. back and reread them. But you're right. I wrote letters and postcards home and to friends and to boys, all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a whole different way of communicating. All right. But enough about our nostalgia for the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the few years leading up to your 40th birthday. You're a mom of three young kids, including a set of twins, which I can't yeah. even imagine. Don't imagine. Don't imagine. <laughs> what are you doing professionally at that point in time? What was I doing? It's really difficult because I turned 40 a year after COVID. So it was really weird. So sort of the year before my 39th year was COVID. So, okay. You know, hor horrific. So once I had my daughter and moved down here, I was then made redundant when I was on maternity leave by okay. my company which was really quite a sharp shock because I thought I had a job to go back to and I didn't. So I then started freelancing and working for myself. I was editing a kind of online wellbeing magazine at the time, working on in actually producing podcasts. And I was doing quite a lot of other things. So I was enjoying my work, but I don't know how fulfilled I felt. But it was really difficult because my twins were two and a half when COVID hit, I guess. So that was sort of 2020, wasn't it? Um, yeah, they were born in... 2017 so yeah they were two and a half kind of when it all started and I really struggled after they were born I do quite a lot of work for a charity that supports women with postnatal mental health challenges and initially I kind of just thought this is difficult this is hard that's all it is and then I slowly kind of came to realize that probably I was depressed and I did have postnatal depression funnily enough I'm possibly coming to realize now that I'm not not even sure whether I did I actually think it's a whole much larger cultural societal issue around the pressure of motherhood and the pressure of parenting and the microscope under which women are. And the fact that we're a two income household, like like most people. Mm -hmm. So I had to work, I had to have the children. And I think it was just all of that. And I think also the thing that therapy, for instance, has taught me is we all have coping mechanisms, the way that we get through the challenges in our life. We have coping mechanisms. Some of them are unhealthy, eating too much, eating right. too much, shopping too much. But some of them are perfectly fine. Some of them, you know, running or enjoying having a tidy house. And you know, those are fine. Those are good coping mechanisms. But when sure. you have children, a lot of your access to those coping mechanisms are taken away. You suddenly can't go for a run and you can't do yoga and you can't get out of the house and see your friends really easily. And a lot of the things that kind of ground you and that get you back to yourself just disappear and so there is a real loss of self I think mm -hmm. so in a way I was unfulfilled in many ways before I turned 40 because I was doing work that I enjoyed but didn't love mm -hmm. I was coming out at the edge of some sort of depression or real sort of lowness 
And just when I thought I was about to get my breath back and life was starting to get a tiny bit easier, the twins had finally started nursery and that had gone really well. Yeah, coronavirus hit. And I know it was hard for everyone. Right. Um, it was really challenging for me, um, mm-hmm. in, particularly because one of the ways that my sort of depression or my struggles manifested itself is just this fear of being alone in the house with kids with nothing to do. And that's when you feel the rage and the panic kind of build. Coronavirus made me do that day after day after day after day. I mean, talk about it's not aversion therapy, immersion therapy. And I will say it has got me over that. You know, I don't worry about that now. But it was really difficult. It was really challenging. And I love my kids, obviously, goes without saying. But two boys is a lot. They're very Mm -hmm. spirited boys. One of them is quite kind of highly sensitive and highly emotional. Mm -hmm. And he absorbs everything going on around him. So you put that into the mix of two people who are trying to do two full-time jobs. Um, well, the way my husband and I split it with coronavirus was I were, he worked in the morning and I had the kids and I worked in the afternoon and he had the kids. But we were both lucky in that we both worked remotely and actually both of our jobs weren't massively affected by it. But that meant we were both trying to do two full-time jobs in two and a half days a week. Right. And we were lonely and miserable like everyone else and scared mm-hmm. and it was difficult. Particularly one of my sons, I think, really absorbed all of that and it just became more and more and more difficult. Mm-hmm. So it was a challenging year and it went up and down and my work kind of ebbed and flowed. Some things came in off the back of coronavirus. I lost some work like everyone did. Actually, what was so interesting about my 40th, I turned 40 at the end of June 2021. So it was almost to the day here and I don't know what it was like over there in the US, but it was almost to the day here that they lifted nearly all the restrictions and you could have big parties and gatherings and you didn't have to be outside and you could hug and kiss. It kind of gave me a reason to have a massive party. So my forces became like this pinnacle of kind of, yes, just got to get there. We've just got to get there. So I didn't approach it at all with dread, not in any way. And whether that is because I suppose when you've got small children and you're struggling, every day that's further away from them being really small is better because it gets better because they get bigger. So for me, the moving forward wasn't really a difficult thing. It was a positive thing. Does that, does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I can just imagine the coronavirus and the lockdowns and stuff was like a cloud. And so for you, as you're just Mm. about to turn 40, it's the sun's coming out from behind the cloud. Yeah. I can see that that would be heartening. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was, and I got to throw this absolutely fabulous 40th birthday party in our garden we had this huge table that kind of weaved halfway down the garden and flowers everywhere. it was just the most incredible day and it was incredible to be with people again so yeah that was it I kind of jumped right into 40 with kind of both feet head first really full of excitement. This is going to be interesting as we tie this all together, right? So there's a period of real lowness for a couple of years and then coronavirus and then the sun's coming out and you're feeling good and you're jumping in Mm. and then tell me about your 40th year yeah so that was really interesting so I turned 40 and felt great felt really good about my life and really positive and I was like yes you know this is it I'm gonna be good and then the twins started school that September so I turned 40 in the June and the twins were starting school even before I got to it felt like it was going to be a landmark moment right. if nothing else for the fact that the cost of childcare for us has been crippling to anyone who has twins or triplets you know you didn't ask for that many children at once and you get it and there is no support for the fact you have to find extra money 
double double everything and it's not just the childcare it's double everything so in practical sense that was amazing but also it just felt like sort of suddenly I'd moved out of tiny babies and I was in a kind of different phase so that was really exciting and a week before they started school I agreed to take part in a charity firewalk raising money for the charity that I do look quite a lot of work with for postnatal depression and anxiety and that itself became again a real landmark moment I recommend it to everyone for me it was a real way to kind of step into my 40s and also step away from what had been a few really challenging years I really kind of found the inner resilience and that inner strength and all those things that you come to rely on and kind of stepped onto those hot coals feeling incredibly inspired and empowered and it was really special. Next day, my baby sister, as it were, came to see us. And we live near a polo playing fields, which we can walk up to. And it's terribly British and watch the polo. And we all walked up there with the kids and we sat and shared a bottle of fizz. And it was just, it was a really special day. And, you know, we giggled and it was lovely. That was the middle of September. And then bar one other time, that was the last time I ever saw her. Because on the 16th of October, she died completely suddenly completely shockingly uh, of a pulmonary embolism um and it's weird how that moment of kind of stepping into my power and her weirdly being there and then literally a month later less than a month later it all just kind of imploding it was really difficult and I was the one who found her my mum and I knew something was wrong because she hadn't answered her phone she lives about half an hour away from me so late on a Saturday evening we drove up to her flat And my mum parked the car and waited in the hall. She was too scared to go in. And even though you, of course, tell yourself it's going to be that, it's obviously not going to be that. Then I found her in her bedroom um, on the floor. And yeah, it was was awful. Mm. Um, The weirdest thing was the very first feeling I had actually was relief, only because, because it was a Saturday night and we hadn't heard from her. I was also worried that she'd gone out and something had happened to her. And I was sort of really consumed with the not knowing and what we do. I think looking back on it, My very first instinct was, at least I know where she is. But then, of course, the reality of it slowly kind of sinks in. Right. And yeah, you know, those are life-changing moments. It's life-changing because she died. It's life-changing because I found her. It's life-changing because of the impact it's had on our whole family. Um, My mum is actually very unwell. She's in hospital at the moment. And I'm sure that a large part of it is linked to the grief of losing her her youngest child. Mm. Um, So it it was really really hard and you know it it will never not be hard it goes on being hard um I don't know if I ever thought sort of this is really annoying I've just got my life back but I think there was a sense of kind of you know when do I get to take a breath when do I get to get off the train when does this when does life stop exploding um I think that's a bit what I felt um you know and then with my mum getting ill in the last few months that I said the exact same phrase to someone the other day. I was like, I just, when will the world just stop exploding or my world stop exploding? So yeah, it's, um, it was, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. Learning to live without her is impossibly hard. And yeah, I mean, there isn't really, and that kind of, I don't know. I don't know if that kicked off a kind of, I think lots of people, when someone dies, they're kind of like, you know, we're on this earth for such a short time. I must quickly and instantly change my life and quit my job. And, you know, I don't, that wasn't really what happened for me. I think I became really acutely aware that settling wasn't really good enough anymore. I suppose the work that you do when you're grieving 
if you really let yourself into it you go quite deep and you discover quite a lot about yourself um mm. and that was the interesting thing because again I'd been in therapy before coronavirus hit but then of course that had to stop because of COVID and then I never sort of went back because sort of I thought I was you know coming out of myself so I went back after Sophie died and that kind of allowed me to kind of work through the grief and a lot of the things that had happened around it but kind of continue the work and the self-discovery I'd been doing even before all of that so I think it kind of brought quite a lot of those threads together in a way um and so and yeah you know you'd never you'd never want to say that you want someone to have died of course you don't but that you know it is part of life and there is an awful lot of extraordinary learning in walking through that yourself right so yeah right you said it shook me into rediscovering who I was and rebuilding the person that motherhood had shattered and loss had shattered can you tell me a little bit about that yeah as I mentioned I work with mums who've kind of gone through postnatal depression or anxiety or any kind of it's not even particular anxiety and depression I just find that I'm really drawn to really able to connect with those women who have found motherhood to be like sort of falling off a cliff really because I think actually if we're all deeply honest nearly all of us feel like that but we don't talk about it and no one lets us talk about it because we're supposed to be filled with blissful love and feel wonderful about it so kind of since becoming a mum and even with my daughter but less so I think I've been I'm, I've always been a curious person I'm always interested in the kind of learning and what things bring up and, and kind of who, who we are the loss of self that comes after motherhood is actually quite fascinating to me and fascinating that it isn't talked about more and I talk a lot to the women that I work with and I talk a lot in my grief for women's circles that I do about the grief of motherhood and I really mean that sense of grieving the woman that you were the person and the life that you had Um, and I think it's really important to go through that process I know that for a lot of the last eight years the underlying theme in my head has been when will I get my life back Mm -hmm. and things got much easier when I acknowledged that my life wasn't ever going to come back in the way that I expected it and that I had to build a new one And it's a better one. It's one that I'm much more connected. I'm happier. I feel more fulfilled. But that is almost a process that nearly everyone, every mother goes through. And it's enormously challenging. For some mothers, it's even more challenging. For some people, it kind of happens in a sort of nice, organic way. But I think it happens. So I really do feel that who you are on that moment that baby is born kind of gets smashed on the floor. And very slowly, you pick those pieces back up. And I think you leave some pieces on the floor. I think mm-hmm. you're like, you know what, this just doesn't serve me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think there's other pieces that might be really tiny that you're like, I need to make that piece a lot bigger, that bit of myself, I really need to hold on to. And then, of course, you lose someone like I did. And I think it does it again. Um, I suppose it's almost <laughs> I suppose it's almost like kind of a beautiful piece of art. You slowly refine it and then go, no, I don't like that bit. I'm going to work on this bit. I don't know. That's the sort of vision that comes to me when I think about it. I don't mean having visions. I just mean if I sort of imagine it in that way. So towards the kind of beginning of this year, so I went back into therapy at the beginning of this year and round about April time, I'd kind of really done a lot of work with my therapist and I was feeling kind of a lot better in myself but she was sort of saying I'm actually quite worried about you and I think that you haven't had the space to really work through any of the stuff 
that you need to. And we actually went back to thinking about the fact that because I was self-employed when I had the twins, I never actually took any maternity leave. I've got pictures of me doing my tax return whilst breastfeeding one of the kids because we have a culture of going, you've got this. Oh, go mama. And actually people should have been saying to me, step away, let me hold the baby. But no one says that. So you crack on and you think you're like superhuman. And of course no one is. And then coronavirus and then they did it and on and on it went. And so she said to me, I think you need a break. I'm really worried that if you don't fully stop working, and step away that you will end up really unwell and that was really hard to hear because you hear people talk about like burnout and things and I was like well burnout is something for city bankers it's not something people like me get <laughs> yeah burnout is ridiculous um and now well, like the other well, ages ago I then looked up what burnout is and I was like oh I think that might be me so my amazing husband I came home from that therapy session in tears and I said to him I need to stop working for the whole summer for three months to his credit he just went okay I've no idea how we'll do that, but we will find a way. And I'm incredibly grateful to him because I bring in nearly as much money as he does. So to not have that was really scary. Mm. Um, Out of the two of us, he's the kind of financial risk averse. I just sort of pretend it's all not really happening. It was really amazing. And I did. I stopped working at the beginning of June and I didn't work for three months. I mean, half of that was the school holidays. So different kind of work. But I didn't work and I did step back. And in the middle of that, I started to find the things that I really wanted to do and women's circles and things like that just kind of started appearing in my life. It just really was an incredible three months of discovery and having the space to find out a bit more about who I was and what I wanted from my life. And to get comfortable with not doing anything, to get comfortable with sitting still, um, my therapist said I don't want you I can see you doing this already you're like planning to do this course and that course and to learn this skill and go here and do that and she said get yourself a clean new diary and I want you to be able to show me a whole week that has nothing on it and that was really terrifying (laughs) it was really really terrifying but I did do it I did manage it and it has made it much easier for me now to be able to sort of step into that place of just stopping a bit to kind of hear what's going on inside so that's probably how I kind of picked all those pieces up and rediscovered that's amazing (laughs) and what a wonderful opportunity with whatever challenges it came with Mm. what a wonderful opportunity to take three months and just stop I can only imagine I would love that and I I don't have kids and I still can't imagine how that Mm. would happen it's not something that most of us in this modern world are able to do And you still have twins. You still have three kids. It's not like you were sitting out in the fields or on the beach, you know, right, right. (laughs) Don't we all? You still had things going on. But even just to be able to take your brain out of the everyday, Mm. what do I have to do next and work and this and that, that's amazing. During that time, you started to really get a sense of what you wanted to do or what things were important to you. What were some of those? I think I've kind of always known what was important to me, but it's about being able to listen to those voices. Like you were just saying, we all kind of would love three months off. And I wish there was a way in our world for everyone to have like scheduled in in some way, these pockets of time to be able to quiet down the external noise and listen to the internal noise Mm -hmm. or the internal voices and what they're really telling you. And then to take what they've told you and do something intentional with it. That's really what that time gave me. Even though I knew all the things that mattered to me, for instance, working with women, being in kind of groups and gatherings with women, working with women 
who are in crisis or who are struggling, who have been through some sort of trauma, who need support. Holding space uh, for people is really important to me. But also lots of other things like being just really connected to nature and seasons and being outside and being kind of connected to the earth in that way, being more sort of mindful and intentional with the way that I live and being able to weave kind of beautiful words and writings and thinkings and theories into what I do. All those kind of things were what really mattered to me. And for so long, I have not found a way to bring them all together. When I started working in women's circles, I didn't know that all those threads were going to come together in such a neat way. But honestly, for me, it was like, you're looking for a locker and you've got the key. Even down to the fact, as I mentioned with my birthday party, I love table styling and tablescaping. Arranging flowers for me is something I do as a personal kind of creative outlet. I don't ever go and buy a load of flowers from the market and arrange them for someone else. They're done for me. I could be having the entire weekend home alone and that's what I want to do that makes me feel really good Mm. and women's circles actually does all of those things it puts me in a room with women it allows me to hold space for women and particularly often women who are going through something it allows us to ask and question all those big deep questions about ourselves and to talk about them but it also helps me to be more mindful and kind of noticing of the seasons and nature And it allows me to create beautiful kind of centrepieces that are built from nature and made out of flowers and welcome people into my own home in a kind of hosting way that really matters to me. So it was like a light just went on. I was like, this is everything. And I think I've said this already to you. All the threads of my life that have not gone away, that are clearly really important to me, have suddenly come together in this way. Um, But I have to say, I don't know if they'd have come together any earlier than this. And I don't actually think that if I had tried to do this when I was 25, I'd have walked enough of the earth to do this. We were talking in our circle last week about the the sort of modern female archetypes, the maiden, the mother and the crone. And the crone is this incredible elder, this older woman who has literally kind of walked the path of life and knows a lot. They're the women that now I find so fascinating to be around. I think you have to have gone through some of the things that we've all gone through by this time to start to do that sort of work. Hi, this is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast. And I'd still love for you to do that. You know, in a bunch of these intermissions, I have invited you to join me on an app called Marco Polo. And in the second half of this conversation, you're going to understand why. But today, I want you to take a moment and think about someone you know who has experienced a life transition sometime between age 35 and 45. For today's purposes, maybe it was someone who had a big transition around motherhood. If you've got that person or people in mind, why don't you share this episode with them? And if you're an overachiever like me, why don't you tell me about that person and their transition at 40drinks.com slash guest. All right, back to Emma, who's going to define a woman's circle for those of us who haven't run across this thing before. Can you back up two steps and define what a woman's circle is and how you came upon them? Yeah, of course. So women's circles are essentially not new. They're like an ancient concept. Many indigenous tribes still gather in this way. But really, it is about bringing women and only women together in a space around a fire or around kind of light if you can't get around a fire to really share stories, to share who they are, to share their experiences and to communicate 
I talk a little bit about a space for ritual reflection and connection. Ritual in terms of those little rituals that we do that just ground us, that kind of give us pause, that focus us. Reflection in that way, like I was saying, to kind of listen to those voices, to listen to those things that are niggling at you and try to tease them out and understand what's going on there. And the connection in terms of connecting both to yourself, to other women in your community, particularly, and that's what's lovely about circles, women who are not perhaps in your normal sphere, but women who have come with a kind of common passion for what they want to get out of their life. And connection to a sense of lineage and ancestry and kind of what the women before us did. Because a lot of our stories for the last sort of three, four hundred years, you know, the, the writing down of stories is a really male patriarchal thing. Women's stories were always told. They were always told to their daughters and then to their daughters and on and on and on around a fire, you know, all this sort of thing. And so it really it's been a movement over the last I'd say probably only last couple of decades, probably even last decade to kind of recreate those spaces for women. When people ask me what they're like, I would say it's a bit like a group therapy session, slightly like yoga with some meditation, except that it's none of those things, but all of those things. There are some specific things about circles that I think are really special. They're very much what you'd call a co-created space. So whilst you have someone that holds the space and gathers the women, you're very much all kind of part of a whole and, you know, you can talk when you want to. But one of the biggest things, and this took a bit of my head getting around it, is that in a circle you don't ever, it's not really a place for gossip and chit-chat, you don't drink. It's not a social space at all. It is a space to listen and to hear. And so that means that you don't interrupt people and you don't offer advice on comment on what they've said. So someone can share something really, really heartbreaking and really your only reaction is, thank you, I hear you. You don't say anything else. You can later say, from my experience of that thing is X, Y and Z, but so rarely in our lives do people hear what we've got to say. They jump in to save us. They jump in to fix the problem. They jump in to say, oh, I know, but it's not that bad. Like, don't worry, you know, you're not that bad a mother. You're not that rubbish at your job. And actually, sometimes we want to say, I just really hate this and I'm not very good at it and I'm cross. And you want people to go, yeah, I hear you. And that is really powerful. And I am amazed at the power of what happens there and how heard people feel. I think some of the loveliest things that I have heard from the circles I've been in recently is, for instance, one of the women who comes to one of my circles is grieving her mother. And after two sessions, she said, this has done more for me than two years of therapy. I just feel heard in a way I haven't felt before. Um, And those sorts of things are really, really powerful. And I'm really passionate about those spaces being available for women because there aren't many of them. Well, there really aren't any. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. There's a term that you've used a couple of times, and I've heard it in my own world from different people, but I want your definition. When you say you hold space for someone, what does that mean to you? How would you define that? That's one of those terms that is used a lot, but I want you to put some meat on that bone for me. Sure. It means a lot of things and it can mean a lot of things in a lot of different concepts. But I'd say the I'm going to I'm going to nick a description from Heather Plett, who has written a whole book on holding space. Her thing about space is being a bowl, a container for something. And she uses this wonderful analogy, being a container that holds all of the kind of facets of somebody and their story and their pain and what they want to share 
but it doesn't try to change those things and it doesn't try to influence them. And it is absolutely rock solid and safe and its rim is high enough and strong enough to withstand whatever they need to share. Her analogy actually involves Lego and I think it's really clever. She says, if you have a Lego structure that your kids made and they break it, you scoot the pieces up and you put them back into a bowl and they're safe there. But the bowl doesn't impact what happens to those pieces when they leave the bowl. It doesn't impact what shape those pieces take, but it does keep them safe from people treading on them. It makes sure that they don't get lost and it has them there in this unchanged space until you're ready to build something else with them. And if I go back to, weirdly, my kind of shattered self analogy, it actually is a little bit like that. It is in a way in something like a circle or therapy. Therapists hold space, friends hold space, I hold space for my children. It's not a professional thing. It's simply about creating a safe enough environment that people feel that it's not going to leak, that their feelings aren't going to kind of be taken the wrong way, that they're not going to be judged, and that those things that they share are safe where they've been shared, that they're not going to get run away or gossiped about, and that you can share the fears and the silliness that you feel. Um, That's sort of really what I understand it. If I've got a friend who, like I did the other day, actually, who knocked on my door and she's got really bad anxiety and she just said, I need to come over. And I said, okay, I'll put the kettle on. And, you know, I'm not a therapist, it wasn't anything like that, but she sat at my kitchen table And she talked and she talked for 15 minutes and I didn't interrupt her once. I just let her talk and I let her cry. And then slowly I was able to sort of ask her some questions and we were able to kind of create a sense of sort of what was going on with her. That at its very basis is holding space. It's something we all do, but it's holding it in a way where you're not going to do damage, where you're just going to really protect those Lego pieces until that person knows what they want to do with them. That's beautiful. I feel like for myself, I'm always so, well, first of all, I am a solver, right? I do Mm -hmm. like, I'm a solution person, but I am able to consciously turn that off, but I want to engage with people. I want to ask questions. I want to dig into things. So as you're talking, I'm wondering, oh, am I doing enough with friends and other people who would confide in me to sort of create that bowl? Or am I so engaged in the bowl as well that, you know, so it's interesting when these conversations give me things to think about and things to explore on my own. But I guess I would interpret my, it's nice for me to interpret it positively, right? I would interpret (laughs) my engagement with the other person as being supportive and indicative of the fact that I am fully engaged in their story I don't know if that's the same thing as what you're talking about. It's the same thing. Whilst I've described particularly a women's circle where you don't tend to particularly give advice and comment, that doesn't mean that all spaces like that are like that. But to go back to the bowl analogy, what's so interesting is that you could hold the bowl of Lego for someone and say, we could make a horse or a house or a pony or a rabbit. Right. But you are not invested in what they make from that Lego. And if they decide to ignore all of your suggestions and make a car park, that's fine. If they decide to make the rabbit, it's not the rabbit that you would have had them make, also fine. And where you are is then really like, that's a really cool rabbit. You know, how do you feel about that rabbit? I'm reducing it a little bit, but the asking of questions is a really powerful way to hold space because you're teasing out what kind of people need to share we use a phrase in circles a lot saying what do you want to give voice to and I think sometimes that's really a lot about those things like I've talked about that are niggling below 
that we know would be really helpful if we voiced them because we might understand them a bit better. But sometimes you need someone to tease that out of you. It's really important. It's much more about a space where they can say anything. The thing that matters to me is when, when someone phones me with a problem and says, I just knew I could tell you that. And that matters to me more than anything else. It's not that they believe, and I might have really useful advice for them, but if they feel that I'm a safe enough space to explore that, that's the really important thing, yeah. which I'm sure you are for your friends. That's really valuable. It's interesting you're talking about this and I'm thinking about, I have a couple of girlfriends and we have a little group on a Marco Polo. And I, I describe Marco Polo as video voicemail. We can leave messages for each other and we don't all have to be there at yeah. the same time. We've been doing this for, oh, I don't know, five or six years now. It's been a long time. But this is the place that feel a lot of the same things that you're talking about, right? We come and we share our triumphs. We share our low days. I know for myself last winter, January and February, I was feeling pretty low myself and I wasn't really participating. And for a little while, you know, nobody noticed, mostly because it's just on such a pace of us mm. sort of sharing. But then after a couple of days, some of these people are like, hey, where are you? Where are you? Know, where are you? To the point where one of the girls showed up on my porch and said, what is going on with you? Which was lovely because to have somebody notice is mm. wonderful. The four of us are really, I don't know, solid, professional, capable women and yet, like you said, there are times when you don't want to be any of those things. You just yeah. want to be a whiny baby. You want to bitch. You want to say awful things about people. And that is truly our safe space to do that. It's been a wonderful connection for us. One of our friends moved to California a few years ago so we can stay connected with her and she can stay connected with us. So it's interesting. It's not a woman's circle in the same way that you're talking about, but it is a place where we convene almost on a daily basis and share and support each other through the highs and the lows, through the good stuff and the BS. It's interesting to hear you talking about these things and think, well, yeah. I have a different form of it, but you know, something that's got some of the same DNA. And I think world. what you've described there, the two really important things is that it's a safe space. And I think it's, I suspect it's only been the four of you. And if someone suggested adding someone, you'd be like, nope, right. this is no, this is a sacrosanct space. Right. And that probably you wouldn't feel comfortable um, taking something that someone shared and playing it for anybody else. Or, you know, it's, it's oh, a safe, sure. safe space. Exactly. And also that you are allowed to, because you can leave voice notes, you can ramble on for as long as you want. Right. No one's interrupting you. No one cares. You can take a while to kind of form what you're trying to say so right. it works in that way and then in the last way it connects you you may speak daily you may not speak for a week but right. it connects you and right. it doesn't matter where you are and one of the lovely things that actually coronavirus did do was it made it possible for people that were holding women's circles in person to hold them online mm -hmm. I've been amazed how much you can connect much like we are now you know right I think that there's myriad ways to connect the important thing is that you do Right, right. Because when you connect, you can not put down, maybe put down, you can put down some of your burden, you can share your mm. burden, and it doesn't become as heavy on mm. you alone. It's not just your shoulders. Um, yeah, I think things are always lighter when they're shared. And when we know that on some level, our experiences are all so common. There's someone in England who was murdered a few years ago, an MP, and she had this lovely phrase, where she said, we have more in common than that which divides us. For sure. And I think it's so beautiful and it's so true. 
And working with women from all different walks of life has shown me that. And particularly with social media, it's such an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And I love kind of being able to talk to people who there's a common thread that they want to ask the big questions and go deeper. That really matters to me. And it's great to have that. They come into that space to do that. But where they come from, really different, really different. And to watch them be able, as you say, to put that down. When I do an opening meditation, I say, put down what you have brought in with you. Any of the weight that you've been carrying today, you can just put it down. No one's going to look at it. They don't care what it looks like. Just put it down and just know you don't have to carry it for 90 minutes. And those groups, whether they're friendships or circles or your therapist's office, the place that you can put those burdens down sort through them a bit make sense of them really special yeah so yeah I want to circle back to two things the first thing I want to understand a little bit more about right before you turned 40 you walked on hot coals tell me about that tell me why you chose to do that (laughs) and and how when I was a little girl either my mom or both of my parents did this one. I like have the very vague memory. And I sort of remember my parents saying they did that. And to this day, I can't comprehend how you would do that. So tell Um, me a little more. Yeah, it's so funny. Everyone always asks me about this. They're like, oh my God, what's the secret? I'm like, well, the thing is there isn't a secret. What I always say is you have to do quite a lot of work before. You walk on fire in the evening. You've got to wait till it gets dark. So depending on the time of year, you do it. You might, let's say if you walk at seven o'clock, but you'll actually meet at more like two o'clock in the afternoon. And if you've got a firewalk instructor, they kind of take you through an enormous journey of self-discovery as well. Part of which the afternoon also includes walking on broken glass, which for a lot of people is more traumatic than walking on fire. And it's really beautiful because you all get given a piece of glass just before you do this walk and you write down on it one of the things you don't like about yourself the most or something. And then you throw it on this kind of glass or this pile of just shards of broken glass. And then you walk across it. And it's very powerful. But again, you go slowly, you go carefully and with conviction and and you can do it. What I discovered is that people that I've done this firewalk with, they keep those pieces. So every time you're walking across the broken glass, you're actually walking across all the things that people hate about themselves and that they've given up and thrown down. I just love stuff like that. It's really powerful. But in terms of the fire, so you've done these kind of five hours of, you know, getting yourself really kind of geared up to do it. But the big message in it is like with everything that you have everything you need inside of you and you have that resilience and you have that strength inside of you. And that if you believe in yourself and you walk forward with kind of courage and conviction and pace, you don't get burnt, you don't get hurt. And the the point really of it is not really to walk on fire, even though it is extraordinary. But the point of it is that you can call on that whenever you want. And if I take you back to really earlier in our conversation where I said when I first travelled around the world and I was worried about something, I could say, you know, you've uh, travelled around the world, you can do this. It was like calling on that kind of young, strong person. And then that kind of fizzled. But eventually the power of that became less. Now... When I'm scared of things, I say, you've walked on fire, you can do this. And I did that two years ago, but we did another fire walk this year, which I kind of helped organise. And at the very end of it, the organisers are allowed another chance to do a fire walk. And I remember sort of saying, well, I don't have to like do the whole four or five hours getting in the zone thing. And Chris, who runs it, he's an extraordinary man, said, no, Emma, the whole point is that you just call on your warrior and you go. And he's completely right. I stood in front of the coals. I felt my whole body know what to do. And I just walked and my feet didn't get burnt, they didn't get hurt. 
It was like 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit when I walked across it. It's absolutely mad. But it's a magical thing to do. And it really is one of those things where you just know that you can just call on that whenever you need to. It is absolutely mad. Absolutely mad. (laughs) (laughs) But I can imagine it's also magical. Let me circle around to the very beginning of our conversation. I found you on Instagram and the sentiments that made me reach out to you and and ask you to have this conversation. You were talking about um, birthdays and you said you're happier now than when you were younger and happy in a way that runs deep with an undercurrent of resilience that I didn't have before. Will you tell me a little about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered it quite a lot. but We have. I think much like when I was talking about the idea of the elders, these people who have lived a bit of life, and I'm only 40, you know, I've got friends who are 60 and 70, and they would be like, oh, you haven't lived anything yet. Right. But the more that you go through, the little things, the big things, they do, it's such a cliche, but I do often think that what, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. And I think that you learn more about yourself I've written quite a lot on things like resilience and happiness. And I remember reading quite a lot of books that like monks had written on what is happiness. And I think happiness and resilience go hand in hand. They all said the problem with the human race is that we think happiness is like a destination, a place to get to. And it isn't actually it's something inside of us. It's not external. It's totally internal. And then someone asked one of these monks, they sort of said, yeah, but look, really, really, really horrible, hard shit things happen. You can't be happy through that. And he said, no, it's not about being happy. It's so much more that happiness is like a core, like an inner resilient core that makes those things possible to manage, to make you be able to walk through them as hard and painful as they are, because you have that inner kind of sense of who you are and happiness and resilience and sort of inner and inner knowing. So that's kind of how I felt. Um, and I, I kind of believe, and I think I said that in that post, um, I believe that just continues. I hope and believe that the life just just get better. And I I wouldn't want to be 20 or 25 or even 35 again. What is happening now is great. And but I've always felt like that in my life. I don't think I've ever thought I don't want to be this age. And I'm, I'm grateful because that's a really great way to be. In fact, probably the only time I've ever really thought it is when I was really struggling after my kids were born and I wanted to go back to the way my life was before. And that has been, you know, a massive watershed moment for me. So that's the only time. And like I said in that post, and that was before my sister died, getting old is a privilege denied to to many. And you won't ever, ever get me complaining with seriousness about being old, not once. Right. You know, I think of that line in Titanic, I want to die an old lady warm in my bed. And, you know, lots of people don't get that. So I think we should be grateful for every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the older you get, the cooler you realize old age is. <laughs> oh my God, it's so cool. You know, one of my friends in my circle's just gone through the menopause and she's like, it's awesome. She said she wanted to go running around the village and she's like, I'm amazing. And she's, and she says there is a real knowing, like a quietness that settled over me where I just know myself so much more. That's probably what I mean. That if you are prepared to ask those questions and lean into that, Every single day, you know yourself better and you learn more and it therefore gets better because your ability to manage what comes in life gets better. Your ability to make the things that you want to happen happen gets easier. And if those things don't happen, your ability to manage that disappointment is better. So, yeah, it's great. 
<laughs> I think it's that's, wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. One last question, and this is something I'm just exploring. This is the first time I've done this. I'm wondering if you have any advice for somebody who's facing 40 and feeling any of the number of unsettled dread stuckness from your vantage point now, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's facing 40 with some discomfort? I think you just need to know why. You need to ask why. I'm a big lover of books and finding a book, find a story, find a book that speaks to you, find a therapist that you like, find a group of friends or a group of, I don't know, but ask why. Because as we were saying, I kind of think we don't need to step into each day to each milestone birthday, each normal birthday with trepidation. And if we are, there's a reason why. What unmet need has not been fulfilled? What regrets have you got? Because the minute you're honest with them, much like a burden, you, you will put it down, it's out there, and you can either let go of it or do something about it. But right. that will be why you feel like that, not because you're – we're not scared of getting old because before before we were this, when we when our lives were simpler, we just we, – we thought being old was extraordinary. And we revered them, and they, these people were extraordinary wise elders who guided our lives and made all of our decisions. So – we're not scared of getting old, but our society has made us not listen to the things that we really want and need. So we arrive at these places fearful because we're not, we, we don't know really what's going on inside. So I would, yeah, that would be my advice. Just ask the why and keep asking that. There's a brilliant exercise you can do called the eight whys. And you just say, you know, like, why am I scared? Well, because of this. But why because of this? And the, if you keep doing eight whys, it's extraordinary what comes out at the end. Because it won't be anything to do with what you first talked about. It's a really good journaling exercise. It's so funny that you say that. I had a coach once, and this was a business coach, a sales coach, who mm. talked about three whys. When you uh, ask yeah. somebody, well, why? I have three questions for you. Why? Okay, I'm mm. not being cool. You know, why? <laughs> right. And once you get past three whys, it, again, the answer is very different than it is before. I can't imagine where you'd end up if it was eight. <laughs> I know, I know. I did it when I was sort of starting up my new work. It's quite a good exercise if you feel really sure about something, because the likelihood is it will circle back round. And mine did. It was like, why, 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 why? And it came the whole way back round. But I think I use it quite a lot sometimes. And again, when you talk about holding space with your friends, sometimes just, well, why? Well, why do you think that? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason children keep saying why. Right. Because, if, because the bottom line is, if you say, you know, why can't I have that chocolate bar? Well, just because you can't, but why can't I? Because we're not being honest. There's a real deep reason. And once they get the reason, like, because I don't want you to have any more and the sugar will make you really hyperactive and I don't want you to be like that because I'll get cross. They're happy with that. Or because right. we don't have any money and we can't afford to buy any more chocolate bars until the weekend. They, they'll go away because they've got the proper answer. They've got to right. bottom that. There's no more why out of that. So, right. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. Mm. I have a, something in my life right now that I'm rolling around with, and I'm going to try to do that exercise. I don't know how many whys I'll get. I'll aim for it. <laughs> see how far I yeah, get. Yeah, see how but, far you uh, go. Well, I hope it helps. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Emma, this has been just a beautiful conversation. I so love your point of view, and it's just beautiful. Are you accepting women from all around for your online women's circles? Or are you really just keeping it close to home with your local no, community? No, I do them. I do in-person ones, but I also do online ones once a month. 
and I do have a couple of lovely women from America who check in but you know anywhere far and wide in fact the, the more the better I love that different viewpoints always good so yeah and if that's the case tell me how people would find your circle so I'm on the wild circle dot space um and all the information is on there and I'm on at the wild circle space on Instagram fabulous space find me Fabulous. Emma, thanks so much for joining me today. This has just been spectacular and I look forward to speaking again sometime. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. It's been a real honor to be to speak to you. And for me, it's been a wonderful chance to reflect. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed meeting Emma as much as I did. And I wonder if you will also be thinking about the concept of holding space for people in your life. I think I need to be more conscious of turning off my solution mind and just listening. In the next episode, you'll meet Catherine Baldwin, who went from burnt out political journalist to love coach, author, and midlife mentor. I can't wait for you to meet her. I'll see you next week. The 40 Drinks Podcast is produced and presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications.